We are starting our, our uh, Lenten, ser- Lenten series today on uh, the Trinity, and uh, of all things. And uh, I'm calling this the God of Israel freshly revealed. Because that's what it was like in the New Testament of this God of Israel. This continuing story is freshly, is freshly revealed in the New Testament in a new way. Uh, this morning, let's see, are we on here? not moving. Uh, there we go. When I was at uh, Pueblo Bible Seminary, uh, one of the courses that I taught was um, uh, a course called Theology Proper. And what that means is uh, that we, uh, for a semester, we just studied the nature of God himself. We studied the, uh, the nature of God, his attributes, his decrees, his actions. And so in one semester, the students learned everything there was to know about God. And uh, so that's how, that's how it was supposed to be. Uh, and it, there was a two-week span in there that we focused in on the Trinity. So in all this, I went through my hard drive this week and uh, uncovered my old notes from this class that I took. And this is kind of the, the translation into English of the main points of that two- to three-week module on the Trinity. And so this is what it looked like. We had the introduction to the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we had the tendency of incorrect concepts. In other words, what the, do- what the Trinity is not. We talked about the unity of God, and then we get into the Trinity, and we talked about various definitions, the important elements of an adequate definition, uh, the creeds, uh, an acceptable definition, and then we talked about the evidence of the Trinity in the Old Testament, evidence of Trinity in the New Testament, and this was my conclusion at the end of this little module in the Trinity. The Trinity is not a perfect doctrine. The word Trinity and the doctrine itself does not appear in the Bible. And there are aspects of the Trinity that we cannot explain well. The doctrine of the Trinity is the intention of men and women to explain the inexplicable. It's the best solution to explain the biblical data. It's the best we can do with the evidence that we have. Not very satisfying, is it? (laughs) And I looked at that going, I looked at this week going, okay, that was kind of a waste of time. Uh, All of that to come about to say, yeah, we don't know what we're talking about. Uh, but in, in my defense, that is kind of where um, contemporary Christian theology is today, unfortunately. And um, the, uh, that was not being able to define it clearly is one thing, but I'll tell you what the most critical omission was. And that is that there's no connection with life. There's no connection with our Christian life, with our real life. It was just concepts and theories that we kind of just talked about. And in contemporary theology, I think we've driven this wedge between theology and our life and our practical life. That uh, theology, doctrine, that's something we believe. The Christian life is something we do. And those two things really aren't, aren't really connected very well. And even today, in, in, um, in most evangelical churches, you can go and you can find a doctrinal statement on their webpage or in their publications, and it's kind of a bullet point of what we believe, and it's true with our church too, and it's, it's these things, and you could probably look at it, you could probably get online and see ours, and you go, oh yeah, I agree with that, and that's it. But what does it have to do with our life? What does it have to do with my life with God? What does it have to do with anything? You say, I, I, yeah, I agree with that. And we say that Jesus is the center of the Christian faith, but you can go to churches and really never hear much about, much about Jesus, much about what is the central of our faith. You may hear about um, 
all kinds of different things. You may hear about things that you're supposed to do, uh, things that, um, that um, maybe are on the peripheral of things, uh, things maybe why you need forgiveness, why the church is important, and you may hear all these kind of things, but you may not hear a lot about Jesus. You may hear about, a lot about, about ideas and, and, uh, and other stuff. You may hear about, uh, the, if in some churches you may hear nothing but about the end times, or you may hear just about the gifts of the Spirit, or whatever, or, or anything. You can hear just about anything in the church, but nothing really about Jesus. Or you may go to church who are kind of heady and, and, and a little bit, you know, sort of uh, proud of themselves maybe a little bit to say, and then you hear about all these doctrines and you may believe all these little bullet points that we talk about and really have no idea of how the whole thing fits together and how you connect all these things and, and why, they, why they belong together. Um, you may say, well, I, I know a lot about theology. I come to church and I hear a lot about theology. Uh, but they end up just being points to argue over rather than really talk about what they do to our, our lives. And sometimes they even become cliches. We just throw them out there and kind of determine whether somebody is truly a Christian or not because they believe the cliche. And I would say, you know, I, for example, I could tell you, say, ask you, do you believe in justification by faith? And you may say, of course, I believe in justification by faith. But when you let down, the, down, down to the base of that, you really don't. We really don't. Because when we talk about faith in Christian circles, in true Christian, biblical Christian circles, we're talking about trust. And you don't trust the doctrine of justification by faith. You trust the God who justifies by faith. That's the big difference. And the same is true for the Trinity. We say, oh yeah, we believe, that we believe the Trinity. It's, 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 that's what we do. And, and we assign it and we say, yeah, I, I agree with that. But for many contemporary Christians, the tr doctrine of the Trinity is some dusty old doctrine that we have placed on the shelf, and we will pull it down every now and then to recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and then we'll go back and put it back on the shelf, and that's it. That's good enough, the Trinity. Where I believe this is the heart of the Christian faith. And last week we talked about the Transfiguration where Jesus took three of his disciples, went to the mountain, and he was transfigured before their eyes. And I asked uh, Laurel last week to read 2 Peter chapter 1. And, I, and my point was last week that this was the heart of Christianity, that in that chapter, Peter, tends, Peter is able to link theology with Christian life. He is able to link the two because he starts off that chapter talking about how we are sharers, partakers, participants in the nature of God, which is an incredible statement when you think about it. That somehow or another, we are participants in the nature of God. And then he goes on through the chapter, and he closes that chapter, that section, with these two verses. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from heaven and the majestic glory said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. I'm not saying the event of the transfiguration was the heart of Christianity. I'm saying that the person in the center of the event 
is the heart of Christianity. What God said about that person is the heart of Christianity, that this is my son, whom I love, whom I am well pleased. And so if Peter's saying we participate in the nature of God, that means we are participating, as we become sons and daughters, we are participating in this love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the, for the Father. That's why the Trinity is so important. That is really what it's all about. That is the link between the two, that we are sharers in the life of God. We are participants in the life of God. And the early church fathers, they knew that. Those first three centuries, you read their writings, and all they wrote about was the doctrine of God. They wrote about the Trinity. They wrote about how this relationship happens. There's no, you're not going to find the, the, the early church fathers and mothers discussing the doctrine of salvation or really discussing the doctrine of sanctification, what we call sanctification or discipleship or spiritual formation. What you do find is the doctrine of God and say this is what salvation is all about, participating in that participating with them. This is what sanctification is all about. It's not doing good works because you're trying to earn some favor or earn some points. It's not doing good works because you're going to grit your, grit your teeth and get through it and discipline yourself to do it. They say sanctification, spiritual formation, happens by participating in the nature of God. That's where they all pointed to. And I think we need to recover that a bit. The Cappadocian fathers... They call this the round dance of love. Isn't that great? That the Trinity is this round dance of love. And salvation, sanctification, it's all participating in the nature of God, in this round dance of love. It's not that God is just the dancer. He is the dance. And we participate in that. And that's where it all points to. Unfortunately, the Trinity, like I said, it's just become this sort of dusty old doctrine that we pull down. And, and the way I grew up in, in the Methodist church, we had to go through confirmation, all that kind of stuff. And we were told all these things and we were just told to believe it. Just believe it. You know, doesn't really matter that much what you think, how you do it, how you explain it. Just believe it. It reminds me of, of what the Queen tells Alice in Alice in Wonderland. She says, sometimes I believe as many as six impossible things before breakfast. And I kind of got the feeling that the preacher who was given that class was just telling us to believe these things before breakfast. Don't ask any questions. Don't, don't you know, just, just believe it. That's what you've got to believe in order to, to become a member of the Methodist Church. Just believe these things that are mystery. And yes, it is a mystery. No doubt, the Trinity is a mystery. But it's more than just a mathematical conundrum that we have to figure out, that three and one. But if, if the Trinity is, it, it doesn't make any difference in our lives, if it doesn't impact us in any way, then we really only have two options. Either one, it's not really true, or two, it's true, but I don't really understand it, and I don't understand the implications. Now, I believe it to be true, and I'm going to assume that everyone in this room and those watching at home also believed it to be true. But if it's not making an impact in your life, then our only option is number two. We don't really understand it. But, like I said, one thing I did get right in that conclusion, 
that it is inexplicable. It is inexplicable. Two things that we must keep in mind. First of all, one of my teachers said, mystery is something that you cannot understand. It is something that you endlessly understand. In other words, he says, you don't get the mystery. The mystery gets you. And we talk around and around and around about it. And we grow in our enlightenment. We grow in our enlightenment of it, our understanding of it. And it makes more and more of an impact on us. And we, we start to feel it and, and kind of grasp what's going on here. But we never get to the point where, oh, yeah, I get it now. We'll never get there. At least not on this side of eternity. We'll never get there. But we can grow in it. It's something we endlessly understand. And I would argue probably from here to eternity, we will endlessly try to understand this. It is that, that deep. The second thing we have to keep in mind is a theolo all theological language is an approximation that we tentatively offer in holy awe. And what I mean by that, that's a quote by Richard Ward that I put in the bulletin, by the way. And what I mean by that is that we approach it with humility. We have, whenever we talk about theology, we have to talk about it with humility. There's a lot of things that I believe to be true. And I trust in this. And one of the things I do trust is that whatever is going on in the Trinity, that it is this continuous, eternal flow of love that I step into when I trust him. But there's a lot of stuff I don't know. And the older I get, the more I realize I just don't know. And believe me, that does not miss out on me when I have to think that I have to get up here every Sunday morning and tell you about God and realize that deep down in my heart, I just flat don't know a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I like to say that I think probably 80% of what I believe is probably true. I just don't know which 80% that is. <laughs> but I do trust this. I do trust that God exists, whatever's going on in the Trinity, that it, at minimal is it is this eternal flow that goes to and fro from Father to Son to Spirit, from Spirit to Father to Son, over through, throughout eternity, forever. And I step into that flow of love when I trust Him. Amen. I always like to say that that, that that eternal flow of love between the three persons, that was the spark that, that started the Big Bang. <laughs> that... We, we've been told by scientists, you know, that matter came first and then somehow life sprung out of matter. What if, li what if life was first? That was first, and matter sprung out of that. That's what I think the Bible is teaching, is that life came first. This triune God came first. Now, what about this strange story that Ronnie just read to us in Genesis 18? Really quickly, Abraham is at the, foot of, at the door of his tent, and suddenly there's three people. And that surprises him, which is typical. When God acts, it often surprises us. Well, it surprises Abraham. And he goes and tells him, and he says, uh, well, let me get you some water to wash your feet, and I'll get some bread and water. Of course, he goes way beyond that. He immediately talks to Sarah and sends them, the women off to grind and bake, and then he goes to the herd and 
and prepares a calf and all the trimmings, and they have this big meal for them, and they all sit down, these three people sit down, these three men sit down at the table and enjoy the hospitality of Abraham, and then they get down to business and say, when we come back next year, Sarah's going to have a baby. And she is listening, and they don't know where she is, but, you know, they say, where is your, your wife Sarah? And she says, He's in, she's in the tent. And she hears that and kind of laughs to herself. And so, but they know that she laughed. Now, if I was there, I can kind of understand that. It's kind of, kind of ridiculous, you know? I mean, she's past menopause, and, you know, it's kind of, kind of silly. Or it could have been cruel. I don't know. But one way or another, she laughs. And they say, why did you laugh? She goes, I didn't laugh. And he goes, yeah, you did. It's understandable. But it's still not a good idea to laugh at the word of God. <laughs> so don't laugh. Amen. And sure enough, he says, the climax is in verse 14. Is there anything too hard for God? And it kind of echoes that same report that Gabriel gave Mary when he announced the birth of Jesus to her. Is there really anything too hard for God? You know, there isn't. It's a strange story. But the question for us is, who are these three men? They showed up. It's really strange. We know from verse 1 that it's Yahweh himself. Verse 1, the narrator tells us that Yahweh didn't use the word Elohim, the general word for God. He uses Yahweh, the God of the covenant. He arrived in the presence of three men. And, they kind of, and Abraham and Sarah sort of know that this is the Holy One of Israel. This is the Holy One that's here at their table. And they ask a question as one person. And they announce the birth as one person. Abraham calls him Lord, Adonai, probably out of respect, but as we're listening to the story, we know that there's more to it than just, you know, out of respect, because the narrator already told us, this is Yahweh. Now, the early church fathers, and really up through, just till modern, really through the Re Reformation, everyone in the, the early church interpreted this as the Holy One of God in three persons. The one in three. And then we got into the modern times, and we thought, well, that's probably not true. It's probably God maybe with two angels or something like that. Well, now that, that interpretation is coming back in vogue, that, yeah, maybe it is the presence of one Yahweh, one God, the Holy One, in three persons. And that's the, that's the position I take, that this is one person. There was a painter back in the 13th, 14th centuries named Andre uh, Ribolv who painted an icon of this very event, Genesis 18, and he called it the Trinity. And that's a picture of it. And the way he painted it, he thought there's three people around a table with one bowl in the center. And the gold for him, there's three major colors here. Gold for him was the, gold was the color of God the Father, the ultimate source, the fullness, the wholeness of God. The second person is in blue, he says, that represents the sky and the sea. And this is the second person of the Trinity who became human. And notice that he's holding out two fingers of divinity, 
and humanity, spirit and matter, in one person on the earth. The third person is in green, and he gets that from Yildegard of Bingen, who was in the 1100s, two centuries before him, who said that the spirit, the color of the Holy Spirit, remind, uh, the, the color that reminds me of the Holy Spirit is green, because he's always causing life to bloom and blossom in us. And uh, even, you know, we could say even today, it's kind of like a spiritual photosynthesis in a way. So green is the color of the Holy Spirit. And he says this is, this is what the Trinity looks like, that they are enjoying, they are enjoying communion and community and relationship three in one. But he also left a space at the table for a fourth person. He says if Abraham believed the promises, he would be welcome at the table. And he says also any one of us will be welcome at that fourth place at the table. And there's a little box down there. You might see it on the, on the box in there. And that was really glue there, they discovered. That was a mirror that was glued on there that has since been lost over the centuries. And the idea for him was the observer of the painting would see the reflection of themselves at the table. And the point is, there's always a space at the table for us. Now, I don't pretend to say that uh, this was all in the story of Genesis 18. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that this is as good as any sermon I've ever heard. That this is one man's interpretation of what happened in Genesis 18. And I think it's as good a sermon as anybody could preach. That this is the heart of Christianity. That in art form, he is preaching a sermon to us. That in art form, he is saying that God is not some distant, static monarch somewhere off in space. That there is this divine circle, this round dance of love. That this is the Holy One, that it's a dynamic, uh, loving action of three that goes from eternity. And they enjoy this community, this relationship from all eternity. And yet, they still don't like eating alone. They want us to join them. They want us to join them at the table. That's, that's the heart of Christianity. Jesus comes from the fullness of eternity to earth to invite us to sit at the table. And this is the point, I think, that Peter was getting at, that we become participants, partakers in this eternal flow of love from Father to Son to Spirit to Son to Father, and we step into that, and we partake in that. And this is not some plan B that God decided uh, to, to, to throw in at the last minute. It is embedded in creation from the very, very beginning. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 says, Christ is the exact likeness of God who can't be seen. He is first and he is over all creation. All things were created by him. He created everything in heaven and earth. He created everything that can be seen and everything that can't be seen. He created kings and powers and rulers and authorities and everything was created by him and for him. And before everything was created and was already there, he holds them all together he is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning. He is the first to be raised from the dead. 
And that happened so that, we, that he would be far above everything. And God was pleased to have his whole nature living in Christ. And God was pleased to bring all things back to himself because of what Christ had done. And that includes all things in heaven and earth. God made peace through Christ's blood through his death on the cross. This was all planned from the very beginning of creation. All to bring us here. This is participation in the divine life. Sharing in the love relationship that has characterized Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. Develop a doctrine of salvation, sanctification, all that if you want. But basically, the basic point is we point to God, this, this flow of, of, of eternal love between the three persons, and we step into it. The Christian life is, and, the, and human life, all human life, is directly related to this central relationship that has existed for all eternity. And we step into the flow. We step into this current eternal stream of love between the three persons. And that's it. That is the heart of Christianity. Of stepping into the flow of love, the round dance of love. And I think we need to start saying this out loud more. Because we can assume it, just assume it, but if we don't say it explicitly common in, in, in everyday life, it will just be forgotten. It will just become, again, that dusty old doctrine that we put on the shelf and that we pull down every now and then when we recite the Apostles' Creed. When in reality, it is the heart of Christianity. It is what it's all about. Paul Young wrote a poem about the Trinity that I think probably sums it up better than anything else I could say. And I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. He says, <clears throat> Christ, he begins his, his poem like this. One alone is not by nature love, or laugh, or sing. One alone may be prime mover, unknowable, indivisible, all. And if everything is all, and all is one, one is alone, self-centered, not love, not laugh, not sing. Two, yin-yang, dark light, male-female, contending dualism, affirming evil good, and striving toward balance, at best face-to-face, -face, but never community. Three, face-to-face-to-face, -face community, ambiguity, mystery. Love for the other and for the other's love. Within, other-centered, self-giving, loving, singing, laughter. A fourth is created, ever-loved and loving. I think that pretty well sells, settles, says it up. We're going to celebrate communion this morning.